this time of year is associated with many traditions. Many family, families have familiar routines which they follow at Christmas and New Year, although maybe not this time around. When I was young, um, we always used to get together. My mum had four sisters, and in my childhood, the whole extended family, all 19 of us, would always get together in the evening, either on Christmas Day or Boxing Day. Sometimes at Nana and Grandad's house, although that was a little bit small and a bit of a squeeze. So then we moved to uh, Uncle John and Auntie Muriel's house, where it was just slightly less of a squeeze. Lots of fun, chatter, laughter, sharing gifts, silly games, wonderful food. Many of you probably usually would do something similar. Perhaps go for a family walk on Boxing Day. Quite a lot of people often head out into the national parks for a walk in the hills at this time of year. And although this year things have had to be scaled right back, um, perhaps that just helps to make you realise how precious those kinds of times often are. Well, the two Bible readings that we had earlier on described special events in other families' lives, events which were faithfully kept. First, we heard how Hannah and Elkanah travelled to Shiloh each year, and that would be where their son Samuel would serve the Lord under the priest Eli. Hannah had kept her promise to God that if he would bless her with a son, she would dedicate him to the Lord's service. And once he was, I don't know, what was he, three, four years old perhaps at the most, then she took him and dedicated him. Uh, what a great sacrifice it was to her to give her son to the Lord's service in that way and watch him as he grew up. And yet they had reason to be very pleased with the decision that they'd made because as we were told in verse 26 of 1 Samuel chapter 2, Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favour with the Lord and with the people. The Gospel reading that we had from Luke uh, retold that story about Jesus when he was a boy of 12. The family making their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover and Jesus remaining behind in the temple listening to the teachers, asking questions and confounding everyone with his depth of understanding. And after that story concluded and they returned home, we are told about Jesus, something very similar that we read about Samuel, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and men. And the reason we had those two Bible readings is to remind ourselves of those two statements made about Samuel and Jesus when he was a child, that they grew in favour with God and with the people around them. I wonder, during 2020, have you done the same? Have you grown as a Christian? How has the year 2020 been for you? as you look back on it? Do you feel an overall sense of despair 
because it just feels like it's been a year of nothing but frustration and disappointment. Has it simply left you tired and weary because of all the challenges that have been there? Are you angry because you completely disapprove of how the world has responded to this virus? Some people seem to be. Are you fearful because you believe that all of this is pointing to something more sinister? Or have all the issues about COVID for you simply paled into insignificance? Because your year has been marked by the pain and grief of deep loss. People will have so many different reflections on 2020, won't they? So many different reactions and views and opinions. The danger that we face as Christians is that when circumstances arise which perhaps we consider to be unfavourable, we can allow that situation, if we're not careful, to stifle our spiritual growth. You may find yourself almost reluctantly acknowledging that yes, we know that God is sovereign over all things, unconvincingly nodding in agreement that God works all things for good. But the reality that is that this circumstance has actually caused you either to stumble spiritually, so that really you're not in a good place, or if not that, that well, you just feel like you're marking time until things get back to normal again. And then you can start to make some proper progress. And if that's the way it seems to you, then there's a good chance that the problem is that you've become fixated upon the problem rather than upon what it is that God would teach you through that problem, what he would show you, how it is that God would have, have you grow, how it is that God could use you, even in that circumstance, even in that situation. The Bible is constantly urging us to see that the heavenly kingdom to which you now belong as a Christian is of far greater significance than anything that's going on in the world. Your spiritual life is of far greater consequence than your earthly existence. Increasing in favour with God and your fellow men, that should be something which receives your keenest attention all of the time. And none of these things require what you might consider to be favourable circumstances, nor should your spiritual life be put on hold until more favourable circumstances come along. And you should definitely not go down the road of thinking that favourable circumstances are actually the true mark of God's blessing on your life. Indeed, what we discover in the Bible is that it's often times of difficulty and challenge which proved to be the time of greatest blessing and growth if we view them and use them in the right way. As those times cause us to 
cast ourselves upon the Lord and trust him more keenly, search out his word more thoroughly. One of the chief characteristics of the Christian life, and one of the key aspects of your own testimony and of your witness, is for people to see that neither you nor your life fall apart at the seams when things don't go your way. Now, don't misunderstand me. Your wonderment at the mystery of God's providences will still sometimes baffle you completely. How and why did God do that? And it remains a mystery. Your sense of grief when bereaved will be as real and as deep as anyone else's. Your initial sense of shock when unexpected news comes your way can make you stop in your tracts just as abruptly as it does your next door neighbour. The anxiety that you have over a loved one when that medical diagnosis comes through you still get that knot in your stomach, that feeling which really, it's hard to find the words to, de to define it or describe it or explain it. All of those things we quite naturally feel as keenly as anybody else, but this is the important thing for the Christian. We have this, this but there's something else there is something immovable in you as a believer which remains unmoved. And I don't mean unmoved emotionally. I mean unmoved spiritually. Unmoved in the sense that it doesn't knock you completely off course in your walk with Christ. It doesn't cause you to begin acting and speaking as if your faith has suddenly flown out of the window. And that to expect you to maintain any sort of godly witness in circumstances like this, well, frankly, that is just to be unfeeling, uncaring and unreasonable. This situation that I'm in is a reason for me not to behave like a Christian. We can't be thinking like that, can we, as God's people? And so, for example, in the midst of the devastation of grief that engulfs you when you are bereaved, it nevertheless engulfs you as one who has Christ as their certain hope. And that hope in Christ remains visible despite the obvious devastation that you feel right now. The fact that you're a believer, the fact that you belong to Christ is still clear for all to see, even in the midst of such tragedy. And your, tes your testimony is very much alive even in such depths of grief and despair. And even in the most trying of circumstances, the Christian understands 
that God wants to use this fire of this trial as a purifying fire in sanctification. And because of that, such trials may be embraced in humble submission to the God who is working all things well and who would have us remember that which he has waiting for us in the world to come, which will last forever. Now, the Apostle Paul is such a practical and helpful example in this. And in his letters, what comes through time and time again is that regardless of the situations in which we may find ourselves, we are to maintain our gospel focus. The grace of the gospel should ever be within our hearts. The message of the gospel should ever be upon our lips. And the character of the gospel should ever be our daily witness and testimony. They are things that he himself exemplified and taught. They are the things which ought to remain our focus. They are the main things with which we should be caught up. All of which are dependent upon and will point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have this third chapter of Colossians. A little before those verses that we read earlier, we find Paul saying this in Colossians 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. These are the truths which ought to be at the forefront of your mind. There's an old saying that you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Well, if you take a bit more time to read through those verses in Colossians chapter 3, you'll see that that's complete rubbish. That, that to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, rubbish. Keeping your mind on heavenly things is what we're being urged to do here. That's the open secret to gospel living, says Paul. What that saying should be is this. You can be so earthly minded that you're no use to heaven. We are to keep our, our minds set on things above, not dwell upon the things of this world. Maybe that's one of the reasons why you're so downcast at the moment or struggling at the moment or in despair at the moment. You've got it the wrong way round. Therefore, continues Paul, put to death your members, which means your former sinfulness. 
which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are, are to put off all these. He gives a big long list. Take all that off, he says. And then, therefore, as the elect of God, those who are holy and beloved, put on, put on. Do you see the language that Paul uses? Put off and then put on. Long time ago when I worked in a bank, uh, they introduced corporate wear. Up until that time, everyone just bought their own clothes, of course, back then. Uh, the men all had to wear suits and shirt and tie and all the ladies used to have to dress quite smartly. But then the bank introduced this, this corporate wear, a prescribed range of mix and match clothes for all the staff to wear. Uh, we could all look slightly different, but we had a clear and obvious corporate identity. We were all in the same colour scheme. There were little giveaways that uh, we all worked for this particular bank. At the moment, you'll see pictures on your television screens and in your newspapers. The government are using military personnel to assist medical workers. They're doing that with the testing for the virus. Uh, they're going to do it for the vaccination program. And as you see the pictures of these different individuals, you can instantly tell who is who. The medics are all in their scrubs and the military people are all in their fatigues and both are instantly recognisable. God has a new set of clothes, as it were, for us to wear. A corporate identity, if you will, making us instantly recognisable as those who belong to him. Regardless of our circumstances, being recognisable as the Lord's people is something that should be of great concern. There's something about us, something about our manner, something about our conduct, something about our speech, which marks us out from the rest. Very often, just the fact that we can behave like Christian people even there in that situation, in that circumstance. That we can live as a Christian ought to live, even in the midst of all of that. That can be a huge part of our Christian testimony. That can do a, a huge amount in pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul teaches us. Uh, the man whose, whose own back was a mass of scars from all the floggings that he'd received for the cause of Christ. The man who wrote many of his letters from, from prison for the gospel. But all he ever wanted to talk about was Christ and the church and God's glory. And to seek to build people up in their faith. He would never dwell upon the circumstances. He would always point people to Christ. He would always be speaking of God's truth. He was a man who had his priorities right. 
And I want to show you that Paul this morning shows us what are the things that we should be concerning ourselves over. What is it that we should be putting on? What do we need to put on? Well, this message has just had one quite lengthy introduction. And now I want to finish with eight very brief points. And have open in front of you Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 to 17. What do you need to put on today to be the Christian that God wants you to be? What is it that you need to put on today that you might make progress in growing in favour with God and with your fellow man as a Christian man or woman? What is it that you need to keep on putting on through this new year that you might live to the glory of God and point others to Christ, that your life might be a living gospel message to those around you? Well, have your Bible open there at Colossians 3 and that, let's take a look. Number one, put on tender mercies, to have compassion. Mercy means to show people a leniency that they don't deserve, just like God has with you. At the conclusion to his parable about the Good Samaritan, Jesus asks his listeners a question. Who was this man's neighbour? The answer that was given, the one who showed him mercy. And the reply from Jesus, go and do likewise. Put that on. Regardless of your circumstances, put on tender mercies. The thing about mercy is that it's not what you expect. For a Jew to call a Samaritan good is something they'd normally have to do through gritted teeth. For a Samaritan to be the good person in the story was a hard pill for them to swallow. A good Samaritan? Well, there's an oxymoron. I wasn't expecting that. Be that to others. Tenderly be to them what they do not expect because you are a follower of Christ. Put on tender mercies and touch the lives of others with that tender mercy. Number two, put on kindness. This is to be a constant attitude of heart towards others, a benevolent, selfless, thoughtful, caring, giving attitude towards others. So kindness is not put off by the fact that it might not be that convenient for you right now. Kindness will do it anyway. Kindness does not act because it hopes to get something back in return. Kindness is its own motivation for doing something. 
just like the kindness that God has shown you. He shows you kindness because He is kind. That's how we are to be for others. There is a sense perhaps in which you could say that tender mercies are the inner moving of your spirit and kindness is that mercy in action. Perhaps that helps to see it that way. Likewise, there can be quite a a link between the next two terms, can't there? Humility and meekness. Firstly, humility. This is point number three. Humility. Put it on. Humility primarily involves an inner attitude of heart in terms of how you view yourself alongside others. True humility never allows you to esteem yourself above other people. Winston Churchill had arrived to speak at a meeting and he was asked, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing just like this? It can be quite flattering, he replied. But whenever I feel that way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech, I was about to be hanged, the crowd would be an awful lot bigger. Humility. Not allowing yourself to become puffed up inflated with a sense of your own importance. And as you look around your fellow man, as you look around your your other brothers and sisters in Christ, you're, you're quite ready in your own soul to esteem every single one of them more than yourself. And linked to that, fourthly, is meekness. And in some ways, perhaps, meekness is humility in action. The ability to give way to the hopes and needs of somebody else. To prefer others before yourself. To be ready to abandon your rights for the benefit of others. To be ready to take on the most menial of tasks never for a moment thinking that this is beneath me. The the words I am too good for never cross your mind, would never be coming from your lips. You're ready to rejoice in the gifts and the abilities and the successes of others. There's no sense of jealousy or covetousness. You, You hold yourself back, you restrain yourself from all of those kinds of feelings. Meekness is to keep a restraint on pride, on self, on ego. It is humility in action. It's interesting to see how these various qualities actually build on one another. Uh, They're in this order for a reason, you know. Can you show kindness to someone but not be humble. Well, yes, you can. 
You could show kindness to someone, but actually you're doing it because you want to make a good impression. You want people to think well of you. You could even show an act of kindness because actually you think that no one else could possibly do it as good as you can. That would be kindness that's being shown, but actually what it's being fueled by is pride. That can be possible. The fact that you've done an act of kindness is not enough, you see. Add to that humility and meekness. And then you're really getting to the heart of the matter, aren't you? Because you're getting to the matter of the heart. Simply showing acts of kindness is not sufficient. Paul knows that, he understands that, which is why straight away afterwards he adds humility, meekness. These things all build a much bigger, broader picture. And what will often be a giveaway is either the presence of or the lack of patience, long-suffering, bearing with one another, the ability to put up with exasperating or annoying behaviour in others. You're someone who's never easily provoked. These qualities of character they're not what come naturally to most of us. And this is why Paul tells us that they are things which we usually need to address by the work of God's Spirit within us, within you, receiving from him the grace and the enabling that all of us need. With something like patience, perhaps you're tempted to excuse yourself. I'm just not like that. That just isn't me to be patient like that. To which Paul replies, that's because you haven't yet given yourself to putting it on. You have to put it on. It may require you to get down on your knees before the Lord to do it, but you have to put it on as a Christian. And as a Christian, you can. As a Christian, you must. In Christ you may, in Christ you will. It's like the medics in their scrubs and the military in their fatigues. As a Christian, this is what you wear. This is what distinguishes you from the rest. Patience is part of the package. Time to put it on, my friend. And then with that, you see, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. You see, in these great qualities of character, the, the heart of the Christian being both softened and warmed under the light and the glow of God's love for you. What tender mercies and kindness God has shown to you. What better example of humility and meekness could you ever hope to see than in the manger at Bethlehem and on the cross at Calvary? What patience, what, what forgiveness has God expressed towards you?
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, does Paul say in, in verse 13, as Christ has done for you, so must you do. Right there you see, as Christ has done for you, there is your example that you are being called to follow. There is the one in whom all of these things now are possible for you who are in him and he in you. This is living out the graces of Christ. Without him, all of these things are impossible, but with him, none of them are impossible. All of this has Christ at its heart and at its centre. And to think of yourself as being above any of these things is to think of yourself as being above Christ. In which case, perhaps you don't really know him at all. So forbearing and forgiving, you give people a lot of slack. They'll make mistakes just like you do. They'll wind you up just like you do them. And they'll let you down. They'll make mistakes, they'll wind you up, they'll let you down. But you do not allow that to colour your view of them. You do not allow that to change your attitude and behaviour towards them. You forbear and you forgive. You choose not to take offence. You choose not to hold a grudge. You choose those things, you know. And you don't ask people to perform impossible jumps through unreachable hoops before you're prepared to forgive them. You have a heart of forgiveness and forbearance towards all and especially towards the Lord's people. How is any of this possible? This is too big an ask. Well, it would be were it not for that work of grace that God has done in your life. And all of it has love at its heart, which is point number seven. And you guessed it. This is that Christ-like, selfless, self-giving, self-giving uh, self and serving others agape love that is mentioned so often in the New Testament. And you might be thinking, but I don't have that. I can't love like that. Well, no, on your own, you can't. But Paul says, in Christ you can, and in Christ you must, and put it on, put it on. This is not a love which waits until it feels right. This is a love because it acts, because it knows that to do it is the right thing to do. And it becomes something that you delight in doing. Think of that phrase, the bond of perfection, that you see there in these verses as that which ties it all together and makes it complete. This love ties it all together and makes it complete. And then you'll be well on your way to discovering that peace which may only be found in Christ. 
peace. Number eight, think about it. Everywhere you look in the church, what do you see? Think of a church like this. Everywhere you look, you see tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love. There, you'll find a church where all the people are at peace. They're at peace with God through Christ. They're at peace with each other through Christ. At peace within themselves through Christ. And so look to verses 15 to 17. How can we not be thankful? And how is this maintained? This all seems too good to be true. How can any group of people, even Christians, remain established and consistent in all of these things? Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Let it. Allow it. Seek it. Pursue it. Make it your goal and your aim. Give yourself to it as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. These are the kinds of things which should be receiving your closest attention. These are the things which are to be your great concern. These are the things which continue to apply no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what your circumstances may be as we go through 2021. And 2020 has shown us and taught us to be ready for the unexpected. These are the things which will enable you individually and enable us as a body to endure and persevere through all of life's circumstances. These are the things which will ensure that you grow in wisdom, in stature, in favour with God and with those around you. And that you do so to his glory. Because in any man or woman, or boy or girl, only God can produce this. And let that be your testimony. Let that be your witness this year.